I spent the first half of my life here in Southern California and the second half of my life uh, back in the middle part of the country. When we moved to Iowa, uh, we purchased a house and the neighbors immediately uh, came over to greet us and the first question of the neighbor right behind us is, you're not going to build a fence, are you? Uh, we in California uh, are very insular, and so uh, we build block walls around our houses or fences uh, uh, so that we don't have to get to know uh, our neighbors. Uh, back in the Midwest, nobody builds fences. Everybody just runs over each other's yards. Everybody is friendly to each other. Uh, we share our dogs. Our dogs move around uh, from neighbor to neighbor. Uh, and when you come to a stop sign, if it's even close or not even that close, you just say, go ahead, go ahead, you know, and then, then you're, you're taking your time to, to cross through the intersection. If someone needs help, you just quickly volunteer. You try to anticipate help. So, uh, for example, if a big snowstorm comes and you're up early and you're plowing your driveway, well, you just plow the neighbor's driveway and the neighbor next door to him, too, before he can get up. It's just so friendly and so outgoing as far as knowing your neighbors and talking to people. So by the time I came back to California six years ago, I was waving to people as we passed each other. You know, uh, the little, you have your hands on the steering wheel, the little finger goes up as you're passing a car and they're like, you know, what's going on? You know, I'd say hi, good morning to people on the sidewalk, and they just walk past me, not even making eye contact, as if I'd never said a thing. And it took me a long time to get back into the California groove of ignoring people. <laughs> so I want to take you to a story in the scripture in which Jesus teaches us how to reach out to people. And in this particular story, he's reaching out to a group of people that are not looked highly upon at all, and yet they're a people he has commanded uh, his followers to reach when he was returning to the Father and was uh, promising that he would give them the Spirit. Uh, he said, you shall be my witnesses. They were in Jerusalem at the time. He says, not just to Jerusalem, but the entire province of Judea, but the very next thing he says, and to Samaria, literally. He commended them to go to Samaria. And you might say, well, what's so big about going to Samaria? That land had been part of the northern ten tribes. The, during the rebellious time, uh, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon to come and conquer and destroy Jerusalem and carry off the two southern tribes uh, to Babylon. Uh, the Assyrians occupied the northern ten tribes, uh, deported 30,000 of the Israelis, and then imported in a colonization sort of way uh, Assyrians where those 30,000 people lived, and then they intermarried into them to try to assimilate them into the Assyrian Empire. And to some extent, uh, it was successful. The descendants of that blend were the Samaritans. And in fact, their religion even changed. They no longer worshipped at uh, Jerusalem. They worshipped at Gerizim. Uh, and they didn't even hold to the entire Old Testament, just the original uh, five books of the Pentateuch. And so the Jews didn't want to have any dealings at all with the Samaritans. And yet, when it was getting rough down in the south and Jesus decided to cool things down a bit by going up north to Galilee, rather than taking the normal route, which is the long route, 
which everyone from the south would take, they'd cross the Jordan River, go up the east side, and then cross back over to get into Galilee. He says he had to go through Samaria. And the had to go is because he has a divine appointment. He wants to meet Samaritans. He wants to talk to them about relationship with God. And we learn many things about talking to people about God as we watch our Savior. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 4. John 4, verse 3, He left Judea and went again away into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was the sixth hour. We learned a little later on that disciples have decided uh, to go into town and to buy food. Jesus is wearied and says, I'll just sit here uh, where we're going to have our picnic, uh, right here by this famous well that uh, Jacob uh, once had. And he's all by himself. Well, I, I don't know why it takes that many disciples to go into town and buy food, but everybody goes into town. Jesus remains uh, by himself. Uh, the sixth hour is either 6 a.m. or noon, depending on whether you're doing uh, Jewish or Roman time. And uh, apparently it's the heat of the day because one woman comes out by herself to draw water. Normally, they would enjoy each other's company and come out together, uh, make a social event of it, have a great conversation, help each other and all. The fact that she's coming out by herself would indicate that the other ladies don't particularly care for her. But Jesus does, and he intends to have a conversation. I want you to notice that Jesus gives priority to people and makes himself available. Are we people persons? Do we care more about people than our agenda, our plans, our fun, our recreation? Uh, whatever it is we're about, are we willing to help people? Jesus is present in the moment, gives priority to people, and makes himself available. It's interesting uh, that he speaks first and breaks the ice and says something to her that she thinks sounds inappropriate. He says, give me a drink. Now, for us, we just think like, well, what was wrong with that? He was thirsty, of course, give me a drink. Well, let me explain this. When I go hiking, I carry 70 ounces of water on the long hikes. Uh, it's in a camelback, and so I can just sip on the little long straw uh, as often as I want. Uh, but on the long, hot uh, hikes, I run out of water at, after 70 ounces. And sometimes we're in places where you can't get additional water. And so then I'm looking around at those who are with me, as, uh, and this is quite the filtering thing, with whom would I be willing to say, may I drink out of your canteen? See, the germ thing. For that person to give up water to me, for me to drink out of their canteen, it's like, well, I don't know. You know, this, this is going to have to be very carefully thought out. And she's thinking the same thing. She's thinking like, 
There are all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't be talking to me. First of all, I'm a woman, you're a man. I'm a Samaritan, just look at you, you're obviously a Jew. What are you doing asking me for water? But Jesus wants to have a conversation. It's the funniest thing when we get in lines uh, for various uh, things, whether we're in the supermarket line or whether we're in line to go through TSA. Our culture is we just become insular and just stand there. Even if it could take a long time, we will not strike up a conversation with the people in front of us or behind us. In fact, if the person who's checking us out at the grocery store starts making comments about the food that we purchased, we get all nervous and we think like, don't evaluate my food, don't talk to me about my food, don't say anything, just take my money and let me go. We, we have this idea as, I'm not gonna meet anyone. My wife, who's the friendliest person you probably have ever met, for some reason, when she goes shopping, she doesn't want to meet people. She, she loves being back in California because every store we go to, we know no one. Whereas, whereas when we lived in Dubuque, we knew everyone. You could not go to a store without having a lengthy conversation with several people you knew. And that would like slow her down and it's like, I don't have time for this <clears throat> because she was on a mission to buy something, get out of there and go do something else. Jesus is being slow about this, and he's taking his time. In fact, he's going to create interest as he slowly draws her in. Uh, he, in a sense, has a plan as to how this is going to work, and he's not pushing her away. He, he's actually reeling her in as he uses a common point of interest or contact. He says... She's out here for water. Okay, let's talk water. And so he says, give me a drink. She says, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? John adds, you realize that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so Jesus, not revealing who he is, but creating interest, says this. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. More literally in their culture, living water would be a flowing brook where you have this beautiful clear water bouncing over the rocks and, and flowing freely. That would be, in a sense, living water. But he doesn't mean it that way. He means it as a word picture for a spiritual relationship with God, particularly the Holy Spirit, God himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, indwelling you, living within you, and allowing life to flow through you and out of you to others. So Jesus doesn't say who he is. He just says, if you knew who it was who was asking you for water, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. One of the interesting things about striking up a conversation with a stranger is you don't know anything about the person. You don't even know who the person is. And so that person could say anything about themselves and you would believe them. I was friends with uh, the former president of uh, Biola University, uh, Clyde Cook, uh, who had been a missionary in the Philippines, who had been a professor. I had him as a 
prof going through Biola. He was in intercultural studies, then uh, he went off and became president of uh, OC, and then came back and was president of Biola for uh, 25 years. So he, was, he flies around a lot, and so he was uh, upgraded to first class and was sitting in the first class uh, getting ready to take off. And the person he was seated next to seemed to be somewhat important. Uh, the flight attendants were making over him. Uh, everyone that was boarding the plane was startled and looked at him and was like, oh, you know, and then they'd walk down the aisle and, and there was, he was thinking like, who is this celebrity? I don't even know who he is. I don't even recognize him. My relatives in other parts of the country think that we see celebrities all the time in California. You just have to say like, no, you don't see celebrities. So Clyde's a funny guy, and he, and he loves to make jokes. And so he waits till they're up in the air, 10,000 feet, and he turns to this apparently important stranger and says, do you know who I am? And the stranger says, no, I don't. He goes, well, I don't know you either. For a celebrity not to be recognized, I'm sure it really is an offense. Anyway, he, he didn't know who the person was. When he got off and explained it all to his son, his son goes, Dad, you don't know Geraldo Rivera? <laughs> He's famous. How could you not recognize him? And, and Clyde was dutifully embarrassed. But it is an interesting thing when you strike up a, with a conversation with someone you don't know. It's from the beginning. And Jesus is creating interest you probably wish you knew who I was because I can give you what you really seek even though you don't even know you seek it. You need living water. I could give that to you. He's revealing himself gradually. And that's an art of conversation. Have you ever had a conversation with a really interesting person and you said, that was one of the most enjoyable conversations I have ever had. That person is amazing. That could go on and on. I have to do a conversation like that again. And then you know these boring people that you go like, get me out of here. How do I get out of this conversation? I don't want to be here. No, Jesus is drawing her into the conversation and creating interest. He's talking about things she's interested in such as water, and we could talk about things that are interesting to people. A few weeks ago, you could have talked about the Oscars. You could have talked about the Daytona 500 recently. You could be talking about what's happening in politics these days. You could talk about lots of different things and draw people into conversations and begin to reveal more and more about what they're searching for and wish they had it. No, recently we've had a, a new person in our assembly who straight out said to us the most beautiful word. She says, I wish I had peace with God. So we've been trying to help her come to understand how she can gain peace with God. But few people are that direct where they would say, what I lack is I know I'm not right with God. I know I don't have peace with God, and it bothers me a lot. She's coming both on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday night, and as we're going verse by verse through the Bible, she's going, I understand what you're saying. I understand what it's saying. I can read this for myself, and I can understand it. 
It is an amazing thing that the Bible is such through the power of the Holy Spirit that people can see it for themselves if we would open it and reveal it to them. What is he offering? How can she receive it? God built within us a thirst that pushes us forward searching for him and we're not satisfied because he's placed within us a guilt in which we know we have disappointed him and we know that we're undeserving and we know we don't have relationship with him. We know we need it. It's interesting, she's still thinking physically. He means this as a word picture. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where, then, do you get that living water? Oh, she's an independent person, is she? So she is basically saying, tell me how to get it. I'll get it myself. That's like an American, isn't it? An American doesn't want things done for him or her. An American wants to do it himself. You just point me to the way. You just tell me how to do it, and I'll do it myself. That's the way I shop. When my wife sends me to the grocery store, I'm a do-it-myself kind of person. I go hunting the best as I can. She'll say, it's that aisle. It's halfway down on the left. It's about this high. You should be able to find it. I get to that spot, and it's, I can't see it. But I am not going to ask for help. I am going to search the store before I'll ask for help. It is several minutes later before I would even speak to a person and say, can you tell me where this is? I cannot see it. And usually it's right where she said it was, and I stood right in front of it, and I just didn't see it. Well, you don't have anything to draw with. Where are you going to get that living water? And then, with national pride, she says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered to her and said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The Holy Spirit's indwelling presence will satisfy our thirst for God. And he's using something she connects with to draw her in in a word picture, using analogies that helps her understand what he's describing. He's offering her eternal life that he describes as a well of water springing up to eternal life. She says, well, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty nor come all this way to draw. Notice her blindness spiritually. She's still thinking physically and she is not understanding literally what he is saying to her. The interesting thing is he's created enough interest that she wants what he is offering and is willing to continue the conversation and think it out. A friend of mine was a worker with open air campaigners and we used to go to the beach and talk to people about the Lord. And he was explaining to me, they'll give you out of just politeness, maybe three minutes of conversation. 
And so you're going to have a hard time explaining the gospel in any depth within three minutes. So spend all three minutes creating interest that will cause them to give you more time. So don't just try to race through the gospel message. Draw them in by creating interest. It was a, a very good suggestion. And you'll see that Jesus has got her to the point where she wants this water, but she doesn't understand what it means. And so he needs to explain the block that's preventing her from humbling herself before God. He is going to accept her right where she is without judging her, but she's going to cause her to understand her problem with sin. And so he says, go call your husband and come here. This is going to lead her to believe that he knows everything about her because she says, I have no husband. And you could translate that, I'm single. And he says, well, you've correctly said I have no husband because you had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Women can't divorce men in that culture. And so this poor woman has been either a widow or been rejected and divorced by five men and is now with her sixth lover. And he's saying, go get the one you're with and bring him here. Let's have this conversation together. And she is feeling a little awkward about this, suddenly realizing he knows everything about me. And so she gets sort of combative here where she turns to her theology and the difference between Samaritans and Jews. But this is all helpful because she's continuing the conversation. She says, well, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem's the place where men ought to worship. It's a common technique where she's trying to get him off the normal path and run down a rabbit trail and distract Jesus, asking him to solve an ancient dispute. Jesus is not going to compromise truth in order to win favor. He's going to hang on to the truth, and so he's going to straight out tell her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So in, in many ways, this point is moot soon because we won't need temples. We'll have the Holy Spirit indwelling us when I send the Spirit to indwell us. And then he points to her, misunderstanding. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's saying the Samaritan religion is confused and is error, and that truth is coming from Jesus and from the Jewish nation. And he says, an hour is coming, and now is. It is mostly future, but I am the Messiah right here in front of you. And so in a sense, it's beginning now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, meaning that their human spirits will commune with God's spirit, true communion, spirit to spirit, but it will be based on truth. That's what's wrong with our society right now, is they have completely redefined truth to mean whatever you want it to mean. 
So they'll say, well, she's speaking her truth. What does that mean? It's just whatever she wants it to be. And if you took what the woman at the well is describing as her truth, Jesus is straight out saying it's an error. We should go back to the true definition of truth, which is that which conforms to reality. So I could say it's raining outside, and you could say, no, it's not. And we could actually go out and look. We could stick our hands out and say, is it wet or not? And it would be either true or false based on reality. But you can't just say, I'll believe whatever I want to believe, because that may not conform to reality. An hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He's saying, in essence, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. He's saying, I am the only way, and I have the power to give you God, the Holy Spirit, which will function like rivers of living water that pour out of your soul. You'll come alive spiritually. You'll have forgiveness of your sins. You'll have the peace with God that you seek. She tries one more time to push him away and says, well, I know the Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. You might say, well, how does she as a Samaritan believe in the Messiah? Back in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, uh, they believed in the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy is part of the Pentateuch. There was a prophecy that a Moses-like figure would come, and it's a prophecy of what the Messiah would be like. Jesus was a Moses-like figure. He even fed the 5,000 on the hillside. So she says, I'll just wait till the Messiah comes. He'll solve it all for me. And then he says in an amazing revelation of who he is, I who speak to you am he. There is no personal pronoun there. It could be implied, and you could supply it. But if you translated it just the way it's written, I who speak to you am. I am. It happens eight times in the Gospel of John, and it causes us to think, is John quoting Jesus as if he is naming the covenant name of God? Back in the Old Testament, when Moses was asked to go before Pharaoh to say, let my people go, Moses said, whom shall I say sends me? And God said to him, I am that I am. It's built on the verb to be. It means I'm the self-existent one. I have no beginning or end. I have always existed. I am self-existence. I, I have life within myself. I am. And it seems as if Jesus is taking that covenant name of God and applying it to himself and saying, I am God himself. It's interesting, as we share the gospel with people, that they are susceptible to distractions. So as you're talking to someone, the kids will start to 
become irritated and distracting and start pulling on mom's arm and say, let's go, let's go, let's go. And you'll, you'll say, how is it that this very moment this happens? Or right at the end of a message when we're explaining the gospel, uh, someone in the back will get in a coughing fit and, and, and become a distraction and people will start thinking about what's happening back there. It's interesting how it happens. And the disciples who'd gone into town to buy food arrive back at this very moment and interfere and say, we've got food, let's eat. Verse 27, at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? The woman takes this as an opportunity to escape. So she left her water pot, which means she's planning to return, goes into the city and says to the men of the city, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Notice she is doing exactly what we would want her to do. She is bringing additional people to meet the man who knows everything about her and says, could this be the promised Messiah? Come and see for yourself. Notice Jesus is risking the possibility of rejection by straight out saying, you've been wondering who I am? I am. I am God. I am the promised Messiah that you're looking for. You don't need to wait for the promised Messiah to ask him. Ask me. The one you seek is right here in front of you. So now a, a huge crowd starts coming out of the city, walking out to where the well is. Meanwhile, the disciples are clueless as to how to be spiritually sensitive. And they say, Rabbi, eat. He says, I have food to eat that you know not about. And then they're going like, why do we go into town if he's got his own food? What a waste of a trip. Why is he doing this to us? And then they're saying, like, you didn't bring him food, did you? Does he have his own food? He says, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His greatest passion is to do God's will. His priority is spiritual, not physical. And he's not even hungry when he's on spiritual business. These are problems that we have in which we let business get into the way or schedules get into the way of conversations. We, we view ourselves as uninterruptible. One of my least favorite things to do every spring is my own taxes. I was doing my own taxes one night, and for some reason there was a whole group of students in my living room, so I was holed up in the back of the house trying to mind my own business. A knock comes to the door. It's a student who needs to talk to me now. And I'm thinking, like, I have to do my taxes. There is a deadline. I have no time for you at all. The house is full. How are we possibly going to talk? He's insisting, I have to talk to you now. I have to talk to you now. And so I'm asking the spirit. I'm saying, like, do I have to talk to him now? And the spirit says, yes. And so I said, let's go out on the deck. And it was cold outside. It's cold in the spring in Iowa. So we're, we're out on the deck for like an hour and a half. And I didn't even bring a jacket. But he's pouring out his heart to me. And it was true. He needed to talk right then and there. And I was able to help him. 
But it's an interesting thing to me because it keeps reproving me when I say I want to be too busy for people. And I word it that way just so it sounds offensive. I want to be too busy for people. So I'm flying across the country. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at a conference. Uh, they're going to have a question and answer uh, time that very evening as I am arriving. It's on a provocative subject, heaven and hell. They're going to pepper me, these are well-educated people, with the hardest questions they can think about of heaven and hell. And so I'm on the flight continuing to prepare, uh, continuing to read, continuing to take notes. I'm on the aisle. There's a person in the middle who's nosy, and he's watching everything I'm doing. He's literally reading over my shoulder, reading my notes. After a while, he can't stand it any longer, and he starts asking me questions. And I'm thinking, like, I'm busy. I'm studying. I'm saying to the Lord, I'm busy. I'm studying. He's talking to me. And the Lord is saying, talk to him. And I'm thinking, like, but I have this question and answer session tonight. I need to prepare, don't I? And the Lord is saying, talk to him. So we get in a lengthy conversation for hours, and he just peppers me with all these questions about heaven and hell. And I'm thinking, like, this is the best preparation I could possibly have. He, he is amazing in his ability to ask hard questions and putting me on the spot and, and forcing me to answer off the cuff. And I'm thinking, like, this is great. So I'm explaining the gospel to him. I'm explaining heaven and hell to him. He's all excited. The, the plane lands. He wants us to continue. Uh, he asks uh, for my email address. You know, he says, uh, you, you know, we can get in contact with each other. I can ask more questions. I can share some of my rap music with you. And I'm going, okay. And, <clears throat> and I felt so reproved that I was again trying to say, I'm too busy for people. And here you have all the disciples saying, eat. Come on. We went to all the work of going to town to buy food. And now you're saying you have food you know not of. We can live without a meal. Truly, we can. And we have to make time for people. And I know in our culture here in Southern California, we're insular to where we don't even know our neighbors and we don't look over the wall in the backyard and, and we don't even know who's back there. And we, we, we don't befriend people or help people. We're, we're nervous about people. But you'll see that Jesus teaches us don't go to the east side of the Jordan River. Just go straight north and sit at a well and talk to Samaritans. Open yourself up and be friendly. Be interesting. Talk about what they're interested in. Read to have good ability to converse with people about the things that they're interested in. Stay up with current events. Learn not just about millennials, but... Generation Z. They're a whole new generation. There's amazing things to learn about them. And allow the Lord to bring people to you to open the door to sharing the gospel. Jesus says to his disciples, Don't you say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. The grain, when it produces the head and is ready to be harvested, actually turns white. And so the fields, when they're ready for harvest, uh, turn color and become completely white. 
Samaritans wore white robes, and you've got nearly the whole city walking out from the town, out to the well, and you see a blanket of white clothed people coming at you. And he says, are you ready to harvest? Are you ready to talk to people? Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering the fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. It's a very interesting phenomenon that most people hear the gospel a number of times before they actually believe. I've talked to you about some of the people in our assembly that we're witnessing to that aren't yet believers but are seeking. And you're saying like, well, why haven't they come to know the Lord yet? So my wife, with a woman who says, I can't find peace with God, they spent all afternoon together on Friday. And I was praying the whole time. She comes back and I said, well, well, well. And she goes, it's going to take more time. But we're ready to harvest as the Spirit is ready to move. And we're there for people, and, and we're conversing with people. And we realize that one sows, another's going to water, and eventually someone is going to reap. John the Baptist had planted a number of seeds by calling on people to repent. Jesus says, I sent you to reap for that which you've not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So what happened? Here's the woman who becomes like an evangelist by going into the town. And remember, she was just supposed to go get her husband. She go gets everybody and says, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. The epilogue, verse 39, says, From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. Now, that's a big question. No, we're on a, we're on a, you know, a, a journey here. We've got to keep going. Can't stay. Nice talking to you. We're in a hurry. No, he stays two more days there. And you just wonder, like, would we have that kind of flexibility? Would we say, oh, you want to talk? We'll talk. I can stay. Or we would say, like, nope, got to catch a plane. Got to go have work tomorrow. Got to finish my taxes before midnight. You know, whatever it is, he has time. And I wish that we would say, I have time. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. We need to help people move from faith based on another's testimony to personal, experiential trust in Jesus himself. One of the huge lessons about this is Jesus is working with a woman that many of us wouldn't be willing to talk to because of her background. And you'll notice that he accepts her where she is and brings her to where she needs to go. She starts putting up barriers and tries to explain how she can find truth through her religion. 
He's gentle and yet firm in explaining, no, the truth is this. Let me help you know the truth. A number of people will set up barriers that we don't set up. They'll say, well, you're going to make me change in order to earn favor with God. No one has the ability within themselves to motivate God to forgive them. It is God who reaches out to us in grace. It's God who offers a gift that we have not earned of salvation. And if anyone tries to say, well, give me time to clean up my life in order to become a Christian, help them see that none of us is capable of cleaning up our lives and then meriting salvation. All of us need the grace of God in order for God to offer us what he has accomplished on our behalf. We cannot save ourselves. The work was done by Jesus Christ dying on the cross in our place, paying our debt, the debt that we could not pay. And God then, on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, offers us forgiveness if we would be willing to accept it. We're going to have to humble ourselves. We're going to have to admit that we were wrong. We're going to have to admit that we have disappointed God. But he freely offers us a gift of life if we're willing to receive it. God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, meaning transfers trust from trusting in oneself to entrusting himself to God, whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be separated from God from eternity, but have everlasting life. That's peace with God. And now in this age, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit with rivers of living water bubbling out of our souls, opening our hearts to be generous and kind and informative in helping people come to know the truth of the gospel. Oh, Father, we praise you and thank you for what you have revealed through the work of your Son. We thank you so much that he was willing to take the time and had the concern to minister to others. Thank you that he even turned down food to continue the conversation. I pray, Father, that our priorities would align with your priorities, that we'd be interested in people, that we'd strike up conversations with people. We wouldn't turn them away, but we would welcome them as they come to us and need us and want help from us. Oh, Father, thank you for saving us through the work of your Son on the cross. Thank you for the grace that you've extended to us. May we be gracious in the way in which we deal with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.